way before the first selfie, the ancient Greeks and Romans had a myth about someone a little too obsessed with his own image. In one telling, Narcissus was a handsome guy wandering the world in search of someone to love. After rejecting a nymph named Echo, he caught a glimpse of his own reflection in a river and fell in love with it. Unable to tear himself away, Narcissus drowned. A flower marked the spot where he died, and we call that flower the Narcissus. The myth captures the basic idea of narcissism, elevated and sometimes detrimental self-involvement. But it's not just a personality type that shows up in advice columns. It's actually a set of traits classified and studied by psychologists. The psychological definition of narcissism is an inflated, grandiose self-image. To varying degrees, narcissists think they're better looking, smarter, and more important than other people, and that they deserve special treatment. Psychologists recognize two forms of narcissism as a personality trait, grandiose and vulnerable narcissism. There's also narcissistic personality disorder, a more extreme form, which we'll return to shortly. Grandiose narcissism is the most familiar kind, characterized by extroversion, dominance, and attention-seeking. Grandiose narcissists pursue attention and power, sometimes as politicians, celebrities, or cultural leaders. Of course, not everyone who pursues these positions of power is narcissistic. Many do it for very positive reasons, like reaching their full potential or helping make people's lives better. But narcissistic individuals seek power for the status and attention that goes with it. Meanwhile, vulnerable narcissists can be quiet and reserved. They have a strong sense of entitlement, but are easily threatened or slighted. In either case, the dark side of narcissism shows up over the long term. Narcissists tend to act selfishly, so narcissistic leaders may make risky or unethical decisions, and narcissistic partners may be dishonest or unfaithful. When their rosy view of themselves is challenged, they can become resentful and aggressive. It's like a disease where the sufferers feel pretty good, but the people around them suffer. Taken to the extreme, this behavior is classified as a psychological disorder called narcissistic personality disorder. It affects 1-2% to of the population, more commonly men. It is also a diagnosis reserved for adults. Young people, especially children, can be very self-centered, but this might just be a normal part of development. The fifth edition of the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual describes several traits associated with narcissistic personality disorder. They include a grandiose view of oneself, problems with empathy, a sense of entitlement, and a need for admiration or attention. What makes these traits a true personality disorder is that they take over people's lives and cause significant problems. Imagine that instead of caring for your spouse or children, you use them as a source of attention or admiration. Or imagine that instead of seeking constructive feedback about your performance, you instead told everyone who tried to help you that they were wrong. So what causes narcissism? Twin studies show a strong genetic component, although we don't know which genes are involved. But environment matters, too. Parents who put their child on a pedestal can foster grandiose narcissism, and cold, controlling parents can contribute to vulnerable narcissism. Narcissism also seems to be higher in cultures that value individuality and self-promotion. In the United States, for example, Narcissism as a personality trait has been rising since the 1970s. 
when the communal focus of the 60s gave way to the self-esteem movement and a rise in materialism. More recently, social media has multiplied the possibilities for self-promotion. Though it's worth noting that there's no clear evidence that social media causes narcissism, rather, it provides narcissists a means to seek social status and attention. So can narcissists improve on those negative traits? Yes. Anything that promotes honest reflection on their own behavior and caring for others, like psychotherapy or practicing compassion towards others, can be helpful. The difficulty is, it can be challenging for people with narcissistic personality disorder to keep working at self-betterment. For a narcissist, self-reflection is hard from an unflattering angle. The, the truth is, I think we can all be at fault here, but I'm curious, Sarah, when it comes to vanity, when it comes to the real, the real accomplishment, uh, the real motivation behind why we are com compelled, compelled to constantly post, um, what did the new study you, you worked on find in terms of the, the connection between social media and vanity? You're muted, Sarah. Could you unmute yourself in the top right? There's a little button. Um, okay, so can you hear me? Along with my co-authors, Elia Panic and George Nardis, we looked at um, samples of college students and also adults, so average age of 35, and we found that people, um, uh, people's scores of, of their narcissistic personalities correlated with how much they posted on Facebook and Twitter, um, and also how much time they spent mostly on Facebook. Not Twitter, because obviously it doesn't take long. So um, there's different aspects of the type of narcissism they had that was associated with what kind of behavior they had. But the important point is that this type of behavior is associated with a trait that I'm not sure is a good trait. Um, we are the ones who did the research finding that narcissism has been rising across college, uh, across time in college students. And one of the things we wondered was whether it was related to social media. Right. So it is, right? Um, this study says that at least there's a correlation. We don't. What we don't know is if this is really uh, causing the changes. Right. Because with a study like this, what we what could what it could mean is that the narcissistic people are more likely to want to use these sites, or that the sites create narcissism, or maybe just people who are you know well off or something like that are more likely. Right. Both and also um, have narcissism. So it's not clear exactly what's going on there, but at least there is. A pretty clear link and we're not the only ones who studied this it's probably about the 12th study that has found the same thing right so 12 studies that find there may be a link or there may not be a link no i'm just kidding what what if anything did the study uh point you to in terms of like conclusions we can derive from this that are tangible well there with a study that's correlational you can't really make tangible conclusions i know you don't want to hear that but but there's actually new research looking at actually what does facebook do to us when we use it um, and that does give us tangible conclusions and what it does after posting a photo, what, is, what happens when we post a photo of ourselves online? We're actually less able to take the perspective of others. Um, this is just brand new, came out in the Journal of Judgment and Decision Making in May. Um, so it, it suggests that if we keep doing this, it's going to make us less able to connect in real time. So we might have more social connections, like notches on our belt or whatever, but we're not really going to have deep connections, which is what 
as humans, we fundamentally need. And I know I'm talking a bit old school, and I'm way behind on all this Twitter blah 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 stuff. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit. No, behind. no, we love it. That's why you're here. Every voice matters. No, I'm not actually that old, actually. So you don't look that old. <laughs> I'm on the borderline. I'm I'm 78. So um, 1978. <laughs> so. So I just, I'm, the reason I'm behind is I have two little kids and I'm really busy with like connecting the old fashioned way with them. So it's hard well, to keep up. Number one, it's designed to be addictive. According to a recent study, the average American is now spending 1.74 hours a day on social media, including Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, and Tumblr. This number is only going to rise due to the fact that these companies make more money the longer you stay on them. Think about this. The more time you spend on social media, the more ads you see. And the more ads you see, the more ad revenue these companies can make. So of course, it's in their best interest to keep you on their platform for as long as possible in order to generate more ad revenue. This is the case for just about all forms of social media. They are working as hard as they possibly can to think of ideas to make their platform as addictive as possible to keep you on it and to keep you coming back. Facebook even uses a form of tracking called pixels to gather data from other websites that you go to to learn about what things you like. They then taper advertisements to your own taste and put it onto your newsfeed. You can't really blame them though because business is business. Number two, it gives you a false sense of accomplishment. I'm sure we've all found ourselves scrolling down pages and pages of social media for hours at a time. Why is social media so addictive? A study actually found that liking, posting, and even sharing produces a dopamine rush very similar to what you would receive if you hugged someone. So when you start receiving these feelings by doing nothing except fooling around on social media, you lose all the motivation to get it the old school way, which is actually going out there and meeting new people, discovering new things, or creating new things. Because why go through all that trouble when you can just keep on scrolling, right? Number 3. It lowers your self-esteem. Browsing social media gives you a false sense of what the world really looks like. Everyone is posting only the most exciting, the most beautiful, amazing news and pictures of themselves. Because we want others to like us. Who doesn't? And the best way to do that is to paint the most beautiful picture of ourselves for others to see. Very rarely will you see someone revealing the hardships in their life on social media. And the truth is that the majority of the time, most of us aren't always looking that great or going on amazing adventures, or having the times of our lives. The majority of people have internal struggles going on, just like you and me, but on social media, it seems like everyone else is having a blast all the time. So when you constantly see all of this, you feel left behind, you feel inadequate, your self-esteem will plummet. Number 4. It hurts your social skills. A study found that kids who grow up using social media show a significant decrease in social skills compared to those who don't. This is because communicating through social media is very simple as compared to communication in real life. When you communicate through social media, you really just have to be fluent in the English language and understand how to use emojis. In real life, there's things like social signals, body language, tonality, dealing with groups, and much, much more. 
These things are super complicated and extremely subtle. It's not something that you can learn in a day. When you're on social media, you can communicate with others without practicing any of these things. So in the end, you don't get to see what really works. You don't get to see what makes others feel good, what makes others feel uncomfortable. Socializing is just like any other skill in that you need to practice in order to get good and to stay good. Number five, it is one of the worst investments you can make in your life. Time is the most valuable form of currency that you have. It's valuable in the sense that it will only decrease. You'll never have any more of it. When you invest your time into social media, it's like investing money into a stock that will always drop down to zero. It makes no sense. You'll never get a return on investment. You can only lose. And one day, five years from now, you'll realize you're 25 or 30 or 35 and you'll ask yourself, hey, where did all my time go? Well, it all went into that crappy stock you invested in and you've lost it all. Instead, invest your time into something else, honestly, anything else. Because your return on investment will always be higher than at least zero. If you spend two hours a day drawing art, who knows, someone might pay you a decent sum of money one day for one of your pieces. If you spent two hours a day creating YouTube videos, who knows, you might be able to create a passive income stream that will last you for years. Doesn't that sound way better than zero? In the end, social media isn't inherently bad. Honestly, I use it from time to time. Facebook has things like events, groups, messenger that are extremely useful tools. But if you're just mindlessly scrolling through your feed, you gotta ask yourself, is this benefiting me in any way? Because if it's not, then why keep on doing it? This episode was brought to you with the help of the guys at audible.com. You guys all know how much I value reading, but a lot of us don't really have the time to sit down and read a physical book. I get it. But Audible provides you with a smart alternative of being able to listen to your books on the go. So whether it be on your commute, while you're doing chores, or if you're going out for a run, Audible provides you with over 180,000 audiobooks to pick from. To get your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash improvement pill. And the book that I'm listening to this week is The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. A magic little book that gives you an extremely solid argument about the benefits of tidying up. How you doing? Love the station. You know, this New Year's, we're going to rock it. You have a good time. Guess what? I got full custody of my kids. So I'm taking the role of a daddy and a mommy. So I'm a full-time homemaker. That's awesome. I love it. I've been used to working 13-hour shifts. And now I get to stay home and just clean my house. The stoves, man, that's really difficult stuff right there. And then the restroom, geez Louise. Yeah, I get that muck out the, you know, out of the nooks and crabbies. But you know, it kind of feels good, you know, just stay home and relax and, you know, build an empire and just, uh, just clean up. I love being a homemaker. Alrighty. Have, happy New Year's. Hey, Gabriel. Thanks for that call in. Happy New Year's to you, and congratulations on getting full custody of your kids. Sounds like you're ready for that responsibility, and you're taking on both roles. You'll be working like a woman and working like a man, but, you know, these days, those genders, 
you know, we, we, men and women, we both do everything. We're both more than capable of doing everything. So, hey, congratulations and enjoy the time with your kids. It goes by really fast. So have a wonderful time, a great time with your kids, and have a happy new year. Thank you for this um, episode. Um, certainly the works of Edward Bernays and Freud are interesting and uh, beneficial to many people who take the time to read them. That said, I'm always uh, uh, caused to chuckle a bit um, when I hear the critics of Edward Bernays's work using fear-based um, um, uh, persuasion of groups to um, reject um, uh, emotive persuasion. It's employing the very tactic you're arguing against uh, in the persuasion of people um, to reject the tactic. I prefer um, rational thought. I think Edward Bernays's um, work um, is incongruent. Um, he's arguing that we have the ability to manipulate others, um, which would I would call second um, secondary free will. I can manipulate a group any way I want um, without having uh, primary first will. In other words, I'm being manipulated at the same time that I'm manipulating others. You can't have second. Like consciousness, free will is often misunderstood because we know it by reference, but it's difficult to know it by content, what we really mean by free will. A lot of people will immediately feel that free will is related to whether the universe is deterministic or probabilistic. And while physics has some ideas about that, which change every now and then, it's not part of our experience and I don't think it makes a difference if the universe forces you randomly to do things or deterministically. The important thing seems to me that in free will, you are responsible for your actions. And responsibility is a social interface. For instance, if I am told that if I do X, I go to prison, and this changes my decision to whether or not to do X, I'm obviously responsible for my decision because it was an appeal to my responsibility in some sense. Or likewise, if I do a certain thing that it causes harm to other people and I don't want that harm to happen, it influences my decision. This is a discursive decision-making that I would call it's a free will decision. Will is the representation that my nervous system at any level of its functioning has raised a, a motive to an intention. It has committed to a particular kind of goal. and It gets integrated into the story of myself, this protocol that I experience as myself in this world. And that was what I experienced as will, as a will decision. And this decision is free in in as much as this decision can be influenced by discourse. So to me, free will is a social notion. It means that this interface of, so, uh, of social interaction, of discourse, of thinking about things, about this uh, interface of knowledge, language, conceptual thought, is relevant for that decision. If you have a decision in which it doesn't play a role, for instance, because you are addicted to something and you cannot stop doing it even if you want to, then this decision, I would say, is not free. I grew up in Eastern Germany. Um, it was um, communist Eastern Germany, and it was a very weird ideological country. A country that believed in stories about how the world works that I, as a nerd, thought are obviously not quite true. I had difficulty believing the official stories about how the world works. It was like some weird kind of religion. And then the wall came down, and it didn't surprise me in the least. And then we entered a new dream, a new shared uh, model of the world. It was not quite true. And I realized that most people now fall for this new model. It was very interesting for, to see this for me. And 
Um, if you look, for instance, at the U.S., the majority of U.S. Americans do not believe in the theory of evolution, despite all the evidence to the contrary. Uh, the majority of people are on the, this planet are religious, even though there doesn't seem to be very good evidence for a multitude of creator gods and so on, in my view at least. And if it existed, if a creator god existed, it would be very hard for me to understand why this creator god really does care about whether I worship it or um, um, all these things that we attribute to creator gods by religion. So it's, it's very hard for me in some sense to intuitively understand why humans are religious and why humans are ideological. But I think now, over the years, um, that this is not a bug, it's a feature. Humans are a programmable species. Religions and ideologies are operating systems for societies. and They have been so throughout most of our history. And this idea that we can build society based on rational arguments is very, very recent and very novel. And it's not entirely clear if it really works. But it's clear that we cannot really build societies on conflicting ideologies that are at war with each other. In the past, it has led to situations where the ideologies solved the problems by killing the unbelievers, or the religions did the same thing. And we all agree this is not what we want to have. We want to have an open society, a pluralistic society, a non-violent, tolerant society, but still one where people work together and cooperate well. And this ability to wake up into a shared dream in which people believe things because their neighbors believe them has been a very powerful feature that's probably the reason why we were able to build large-scale societies. We have to understand that when people cooperate, they're very often in what we call a prisoner's dilemma, a situation in where in order to achieve the greatest good, you have to give up something for yourself, even in a situation where that is in some sense a bit irrational. Because if everybody else uh, is not doing it, you're going to be worse off. And for these prisoner dilemmas, we have various solutions. The easiest solution is to have a reputation system. You basically keep track of who did what when, and you uh, make sure that only the good guys uh, get cookies in the future. And the problem is that these reputation systems do not scale. If you have too many people in your tribe or in your family or in your village, you just lose track of who did what when, and you cannot really synchronize it via talking about it. So after a couple hundred individuals, the reputation system doesn't work very well. It also doesn't really work if you are um, not looking. So if nobody is doing the surveillance, um, how do you make sure that nobody is defecting and stealing stuff from the fridge of your tribe? Right? So um, what do we do? We evolve the ability to be normative, the ability or the need to be good. This need to be good, this need to follow internalized norms, this need to serve sacred principles is something that is probably a feature that is ingrained into our genetic makeup. And of course, this alone would not be good enough, because goodness is like an arbitrary vector in value space. People also have a need to synchronize what's good. So people will try to feel what's good in their in-group. It works via empathy. Empathy is the primary mode in which we transmit norms. If you dress up somebody as an authority, as a priest, as a professor, as a pop star, as a politician, and this person says a certain thing with conviction, and uh, people see that others believe it, they start believing it themselves. And it's obviously very useful to do this. There's almost never a situation where it's useful to have an op opinion that is different from the opinion of your boss. So this is the ability that we got, and it means that people uh, perform the same things, that they follow the same rules, regardless of the size of the group. 
And this makes it possible to build agricultural societies with hundreds of thousands of individuals and then millions of individuals. It makes it possible that this agricultural society has people that specialize on different fruits and um, different trades and um, different materials and different crafts and so on and produce all the uh, multitude of tasks and tools that we need to get an agricultural society to run and be able to outcompete the nomadic societies. And I think the reason why Homo sapiens is the only hominid species that's left is because we outcompeted them all. We were in the same competitive niche and we were a species that was programmable, that was able to coordinate arbitrary large group of individuals. That's, that was very powerful. It just turns out that this mode of tribal organization is not sufficient for the world that we live in now. One of the problems we have in discussing consciousness scientifically is that consciousness is irreducibly subjective. Now, this is a point that many philosophers have made, Thomas Nagel, John Searle, David Chalmers. Uh, and I've, uh, While I don't agree with everything they've said about consciousness, I agree with them on this point, that consciousness is uh, what it's like to be you. If there's, if there's an experiential, internal, qualitative dimension to any physical system, then that is consciousness. And we can't reduce the experiential side to talk of information processing and neurotransmitters and, and states of the brain in our case because, uh, and, and people want to do this. Someone like Francis Crick said famously, you're nothing but a pack of neurons. And that, that misses the fact that, that half of the reality we're talking about is the qualitative experiential side. So when you're trying to study human consciousness, for instance, by looking at states of the brain, all you can do is correlate experiential changes with changes in brain states. But no matter how tight these correlations become, that never gives you license to throw out the first-person experiential side. That would be analogous to saying that if you just flipped a coin long enough, you would realize it had only one side. And now it's true you can be committed to talking about just one side. You can say that, that heads being up is just a case of tails being down. But that doesn't actually reduce one side of reality to the other. And to, get, to give you a, a more precise example, we have very strong third-person, quote, objective measures of things like anxiety and fear at this moment. You bring someone to the lab, they say they're feeling fear, you can scan their brains with fMRI and see that their amygdala response is heightened, you can, you can measure the sweat on their palms and see, see that there's an increased galvanic skin response. Uh, you can you can uh, check their blood cortisol and see that it's spiking. So now these these now are considered objective third-person measures of fear. But if half the people came into the lab tomorrow and said they were feeling fear and showed none of these signs, and they said they were completely calm when their cortisol spiked and when their their palms started to sweat, these objective measures would no longer be reliable measures of fear. So so the cash value of a change in physiology is still a change in the first-person conscious side of things. And, and we're, we're inevitably going to rely on people's subjective reports to, to understand whether our correlations are, are accurate. So the hope that we are going to talk about consciousness shorn of any kind of qualitative, internal, experiential language I think is a false one. So we, we have to understand both sides of it, subjective, classically subjective and objective. I'm not arguing that consciousness is a reality 
beyond science or beyond the brain or, or that, that it's, it floats free of the brain at death. I'm not, I'm not making any spooky claims about its, its metaphysics. Uh, what I am saying, however, is that uh, the self is an illusion, the sense of being an ego, an I, a thinker of thoughts in addition to the thoughts, a, a, an experiencer in addition to the experience, that the sense that we all have of riding around inside our heads as a uh, kind of a passenger in the vehicle of the body. That's, that's where most people start when they, when they think about any of these questions. Most people don't feel identical to their bodies. They feel like they have bodies. They feel like they're inside the body. And most people feel like they're inside their heads. Uh, now that sense of being a subject, a locus of consciousness inside the head, is an illusion. That is, it makes no neuroanatomical sense. There's no place in the brain for your ego to be hiding. We know that that everything you experience, your your conscious emotions and thoughts and and moods and uh, the the impulses that initiate behavior, all of these things are uh, delivered by by myriad different processes in the brain that are spread out over the whole of the brain. That they can be independently erupted. There's the, we have a changing system. We are a process, and there's not one unitary self that's carried through from one moment to the next unchanging, and yet we feel that, that we have this this self that's just this kind of center of experience. Now it's possible, I claim, and people have claimed for thousands of years, to lose this feeling, to actually have the center drop out of experience, so that you just, rather than feeling like you're on this side of things, looking in, you're as though you're almost looking over your own shoulder, ha appropriating experience in each moment, you can just be identical to this sphere of experience that, that is all of the color and light and feeling and energy of consciousness, but there's no sense of center there. So, so this is classically described as self-transcendence or ego transcendence in, in spiritual, mystical, new age, religious literature. Uh, it is in large measure the baby in the bathwater that religious people are afraid to throw out. It's, it's, if you want to take seriously the project of being like Jesus or Buddha or some, you know, whatever your favorite contemplative is, uh, uh, self-transcendence really is at the core of, of the phenomenology that is described there. And uh, what I'm saying is that we that it's it's a real experience. It's clearly an experience that people can have. And while it tells you nothing about the cosmos, it tells you nothing about what happened before the Big Bang, it tells you nothing about the divine origin of certain books, it doesn't make religious dogmas any more plausible, it does tell you something about the nature of human consciousness. It tells you something about it tells you something about the possibilities of experience, but then again, any experience does. You know, you can you can. There's just people have extraordinary experiences, uh, and the problem with religion is that they extrapolate people extrapolate from those experiences and make grandiose claims about the nature of the universe. But these experiences do entitle you to talk about the 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 nature of human consciousness, and it just so happens that this experience of self transcendence does link up with what we know about the mind through neuroscience uh, to form an, a, an actual, a plausible connection between science and, and classic mysticism, classic spirituality. Because if you lose your sense of, of a unitary self, if you lose your sense that there's a permanent, unchanging center to consciousness, your experience of the world actually becomes more faithful to the facts. It's, it's not a, dis, a distortion of the way we think things are at the level of the brain is actually it brings your experience into closer register with how we think things are. 
Hey, Ronnie, it's Patrick, and I'm curious to know uh, when we're, you're talking about your linear thinking or multitask thinking, and uh, I listened to the segments about how what science has been saying about it, but I'm wondering what that has to do with uh, somebody in my position who's bipolar because of the, the multitasking type thinking and how you were saying how when you do that in a daytime, you're exhausted. That sounds like me, how when my brain is going through its rapid cycling and moving so quickly and I'm trying, I'm bouncing from one thing to another thing to another thing. And then I get so exhausted when I'm in my mania. I'm wondering if, you know, that correlation, it's, I have no idea. Like I said, I, you know, I'm no doctor or anything, but when I was hearing what you were describing and they were saying how multitasking has that effect on the brain. I wonder if that's the same type of almost thing that's going on in a bipolar brain. Hmm, curious. What is bipolar disorder? The word bipolar means two extremes. For the many millions experiencing bipolar disorder around the world, life is split between two different realities, elation and depression. Although there are many variations of bipolar disorder, let's consider a couple. Type 1 has extreme highs alongside the lows, while type 2 involves briefer, less extreme periods of elation interspersed with long periods of depression. For someone seesawing between emotional states, it can feel impossible to find the balance necessary to lead a healthy life. Type 1's extreme highs are known as manic episodes and they can make a person range from feeling irritable to invincible. But these euphoric episodes exceed ordinary feelings of joy, causing troubling symptoms like racing thoughts, sleeplessness, rapid speech, impulsive actions, and risky behaviors. Without treatment, these episodes become more frequent, intense, and take longer to subside. The depressed phase of bipolar disorder manifests in many ways, a low mood, dwindling interest in hobbies, changes in appetite, feeling worthless or excessively guilty, sleeping either too much or too little, restlessness or slowness, or persistent thoughts of suicide. Worldwide, about 1-3% to of adults experience the broad range of symptoms that indicate bipolar disorder. Most of those people are functional contributing members of society, and their lives, choices, and relationships aren't defined by the disorder. But still, for many, the consequences are serious. The illness can undermine educational and professional performance, relationships, financial security, and personal safety. So what causes bipolar disorder? Researchers think a key player is the brain's intricate wiring. Healthy brains maintain strong connections between neurons thanks to the brain's continuous efforts to prune itself and remove unused or faulty neural connections. This process is important because our neural pathways serve as a map for everything we do. Using functional magnetic resonance imaging, scientists have discovered that the brain's pruning ability is disrupted in people with bipolar disorder. That means their neurons go haywire and create a network that's impossible to navigate. With only confusing signals as a guide, people with bipolar disorder develop abnormal thoughts and behaviors. Also, psychotic symptoms 
like disorganized speech and behavior, delusional thoughts, paranoia, and hallucinations can emerge during extreme phases of bipolar disorder. This is attributed to the overabundance of a neurotransmitter called dopamine. But despite these insights, we can't pin bipolar disorder down to a single cause. In reality, it's a complex problem. For example, the brain's amygdala is involved in thinking, long-term memory, and emotional processing. In this brain region, factors as varied as genetics and social trauma may create abnormalities and trigger the symptoms of bipolar disorder. The condition tends to run in families, so we do know that genetics have a lot to do with it. But that doesn't mean there's a single bipolar gene. In fact, the likelihood of developing bipolar disorder is driven by the interactions between many genes in a complicated recipe we're still trying to understand. The causes are complex, and consequently, diagnosing and living with bipolar disorder is a challenge. Despite this, the disorder is controllable. Certain medications like lithium can help manage risky thoughts and behaviors by stabilizing moods. These mood-stabilizing medications work by decreasing abnormal activity in the brain, thereby strengthening the viable neural connections. Other frequently used medications include antipsychotics, which alter the effects of dopamine, and electroconvulsive therapy, which works like a carefully controlled seizure in the brain, is sometimes used as an emergency treatment. Some bipolar patients reject treatment because they're afraid it will dim their emotions and destroy their creativity. But modern psychiatry is actively trying to avoid that. Today, doctors work with patients on a case-by-case -case basis to administer a combination of treatments and therapies that allows them to live to their fullest possible potential. And beyond treatment, people with bipolar disorder can benefit from even simpler changes. Those include regular exercise, good sleep habits, and sobriety from drugs and alcohol, not to mention the acceptance and empathy of family and friends. Remember, bipolar disorder is a medical condition not a person's fault or their whole identity. And it's something that can be controlled through a combination of medical treatments doing their work internally, friends and family fostering acceptance and understanding on the outside, and people with bipolar disorder empowering themselves to find balance in their lives. So you're reading an article online when you get an instant message with a link to a funny photo, which of course you have to share. And now you're reading your Facebook news wall, which sends you to a video of a panda bear attacking a kid. And now you're reading Wikipedia to learn everything you can about the violent behavior of panda bears. And this is what three minutes on the internet can be like. We live like this all the time, and it has to have some kind of effect on us. The net is making us more superficial as thinkers. That is Nicholas Carr. He is the author of The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. To understand this whole thing better, we need to go way back in time to, say, like, the prehistoric age. You wanted to know everything going on around you, because the more you knew about your surroundings, the less likely you were to get attacked by a predator. And there's even evidence that our brains release some dopamine, pleasure-producing uh, neurotransmitter chemical, 
to reward us for seeking out and finding new information. <laughs> so getting distracted felt good and helped us stay alive. But the problem is that nowadays, predators aren't much of an issue, but we still have the same brains. And also, there's the internet, which is... It's an incredibly information-rich environment uh, that the net creates for us, and that's why we use it so much. I, I mean, sounds, pictures, words, text. And what this tends to do is, is promote a sort of compulsive behavior in which we're constantly checking our smartphone, constantly glancing at our email inbox. We're kind of living in this perpetual state of distraction and interruption. Which is dangerous because... That mode of thinking crowds out the more contemplative, calmer modes of thinking. And that focused, calm thinking is actually how we learn. It's a process called memory consolidation. And that means the transfer of information from our short-term working memory to our long-term memory. And it's through moving information from your working memory to your long-term memory that you create connections between that information and everything else you know. So you've got this awesome life-changing piece of information in your short-term memory, but then you hear that email ding and poof, there it goes. That email takes its place and you never get a chance to learn anything, all because of one distraction. So attention is the key, and if we lose control of our attention or are constantly dividing our attention, uh, then we don't really enjoy that consolidation process. But I can hear it now. Someone out there is saying, uh, what does learning matter if all the information in the world is just a Google search away? Well... Um, that is kind of shortchanging our intellects. If that's the way you're using your mind, just kind of searching very quickly and finding information and then forgetting it very quickly, you're never building knowledge. You're simply, you're, you're kind of thinking like a computer. Which means that our very humanity is at stake. And it would be a shame if we all got assimilated because, well, humanity is pretty neat. I really believe that if you look at the great monuments of, of culture, they come from people who are able to pay attention, who control their mind. That's what allows us to think in the highest terms, in, in, think conceptually, think critically, uh, think in some very creative ways. And it's this kind of thinking that's at risk, being eroded one cute cat video at a time. Don't get us wrong, the internet is good for lots of things, and it should be celebrated. But the best thing we can do for our minds is to find some time every day to unplug, calm down, and focus on one thing at a time. Your email and those cats will be here when you get back. Patrick, so to answer your call-in, I've been trying to find some association between bipolar and multitasking. I haven't found any studies that have been done that link the two. But what I have found is that multitasking can kind of be described as an addiction. And the strong addiction causes the release of dopamine. Now, from what I just learned about bipolar um, and the, the, the clip I posted, it says that the cause, you know, the underlying cause of it in the end is a dopamine imbalance in the brain. And that's what the medications try to control. 
or regulate. So that's the connection I'm seeing. So I guess that, you know, the strong influx of dopamine would give you a similar feeling. And of course, you know, the bouncing back and forth would also give you a similar feeling. I'd like to keep doing some research and, you know, see if I can find anyone who's done any sort of study kind of relating the two things. It's an interesting question and, um, you know, it might be worth throwing that idea out there to some universities or, you know, if you have any friends or know anyone who has friends who are research scientists, I think that's quite fascinating and something that would be worth looking into. Thanks for the call. Okay, so back to those segments I posted on narcissism. So is social media making us more narcissistic? Or is social media just a great place for narcissists to gather? One study that was referenced shows that the number of narcissists has increased drastically in the United States since the 1970s. And that all comes out of the self-love movement. You can do anything you want, be anything you want to be. Everybody's right. And while on the surface, these may sound like wonderful ideals, are they really good for our society? For our society as a whole? So while we're using these tools for our own narcissistic pleasures, are we really being used? There's one quote that comes to mind. If you're not paying for the product, you are the product. So while we're out there showing off our latest selfie, our, you know, our newest dress, what we got for Christmas, what we ate last night, we're spending all this time on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Anchor, what we're doing is building time, data, information for these companies. And all of this is very valuable information. Either currently or in the future, making these companies a lot of money. So thus the question, why do we keep doing it?